Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. This is Marlon Kerner former cornerback with the Buffalo Bills, and you're listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. Welcome to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ken Crippen, and I'm the founder and lead instructor at the FLA. Our special guest this week is former NFL offensive tackle Richmond Webb. Drafted ninth overall by the Miami Dolphins in the 1990 NFL Draft, Richmond was a mainstay on their offensive line from 1990 through 2000. He spent his final two seasons with the Cincinnati Bengals before retiring. Over his career, he earned seven Pro Bowl trips and was named to the Hall of Fame's All-Decade Team of the 1990s. In this interview, we talk about his football career and what he's been doing since he retired from football. Find out what he enjoys doing to relax. For the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week, we talk about some of the best players to come out of Texas A&M, Richmond's alma mater. Now let's get to our interview with Richmond Webb. I'd like to welcome Richmond Webb to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. How are you doing today, Richmond? I'm doing good. Doing good. All right, let's start off with your college days. Why did you pick Texas A&M, and did other schools express any interest in you? Yeah, you know, actually they did. Um... Uh, I was heavily recruited coming out of high school and um, but I didn't want to go too far away from um, from home. I was from Dallas, Texas, and I knew that would be a challenge for my parents to, you know, travel if I went you know, too far away. But uh, back then it was a Southwest Conference and the Big Eight. And uh, I looked at most of the schools in the Southwest Conference and a couple in the Big Eight. So I visited uh, SMU. Texas, Texas A&M, Baylor, Oklahoma, and Oklahoma State, and uh, actually made the decision and ended up going to Texas A&M as one of the best decisions I ever made. Mm-hmm. Now, they actually recruited you as a defensive lineman, correct, defensive end? <laughs> Believe it or not, they did. And, uh, you know, a few years ago, I was talking to uh, Coach Cheryl, and he was a head coach, and uh, Coach R.C. Slocum recruited the Dallas area. And um, um, so I was recruited as a defensive lineman. I kind of went both ways in high school. But um, played my redshirt freshman year, I was a defensive lineman. And then I think after my fall, uh, I guess, redshirt freshman year, that spring they moved me to offense. And uh, I had ran into Coach Cheryl, and we were talking about it. And uh, he said, yeah, I always thought you'd be an offensive lineman. And uh, but I didn't tell you that when when I was recruiting you because you probably wouldn't have came to Texas A&M. So we kind of laughed about it, but it was probably the best decision he made for me. And then unbeknownst to me, 
Uh, also, Jimbo Colvert and uh, Russ Graham were also defensive players, and he switched them, you know, to uh, offense. And both those guys are in the Hall of Fame, so I say he must have a knack of knowing what he's doing. So it, it worked out. I, I think that's 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 the important part, and that's all that matters. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty good track record. So I know at the Senior Bowl, I heard this story that uh, you wanted to play offensive guard. Can you tell me about that story? Yeah, uh, yeah. Basically, uh, the way the story goes, uh, went to the Senior Bowl, and you know that was one of those games that it's not so much uh, just to kind of go take a vacation and just kind of chill out and enjoy the week. You know that that was that was a game that you could either really move up or your stock could tank just based on how you practiced and um, um, how you played in the game and stuff. And so when I went, it was in Mobile, Alabama. I still believe it's there. And uh, Buddy Ryan was my coach. And what I what I felt was, you know, I had played guard for a year and a half, and right before the senior year, they moved me out to tackle and really wasn't happy about that move because I just felt more comfortable at the guard position. But um, they moved me out there. And so when I went to the, to, to the senior bowl, you know, I – went up to coach uh, Buddy Ryan, you know, real respectful and all that. And I was like, you know, hey, I can really play guard. I just need you to allow me to show. And he was like, no, that's not going to happen. He said, everybody wants to see a tackle, so we're going to leave you a tackle. And I was like, I tried, but it didn't work. But like I said, I guess they knew something that I didn't do. But it, like I said, again, it worked out. But that that is a true story. I did go up to him, and I, I tried to – work my way back inside, but it, they weren't having it or whatever. But yeah, I had, I had a good time, met a lot of good people and, and a lot of people from that actually got drafted into the NFL. So um, met a lot of guys early on, even before I got drafted from different schools. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. Definitely another one of those situations where it worked out for the best for you. That's, that's the main thing. I mean, I think, you know, you look back hindsight, they say it's 2020, but you just don't know that. Um, and and sometimes people can see something in you that you can't see for yourself. And after I kind of looked at it, I was probably more pro prototype offensive tackle versus a guard, you know, as tall as I was, long arms and stuff like that. I just had to, you know, accept it and, and get comfortable. And I did it and it worked out. And I had some great coaches and a lot of people, you know, pour into me and help me become the player that I was. So definitely grateful that, you know, I had the the, the journey or the way I went, it, it, it all worked out. So that's the main thing. Mm -hmm. So heading into the NFL draft, how many teams expressed interest in you? Um, I can remember what I remember about that is um, I think the day of the draft back then, the draft was, um, I want to say like Sunday, Monday, and it was 12 rounds. So, you know, it was a while ago. And uh, a few guys would go to New York. That's where, you know, the draft was held, this and that. But I actually went home to Dallas and I was with my parents and my brothers and sisters. And I can remember getting a call from the Raiders, the Dolphins. I want to say in New Orleans, but um, everybody like, the, the Raiders and everybody's told me the same thing. If you're there, we're going to take you, but uh, we think you'll possibly be off the board by the end. And so I think Miami had the best chance because they had the first pick, the ninth pick. 
But, you know, you hear that and then, you know, you, you've seen former drafts where, you know, a lot of teams, they have interest in several players and sometimes it just depends. You can see a guy picked in the draft and it'll shift the whole way the draft of what, what most analysts projected it to go. So, I mean, I figured I'd have a chance, but as I said, I just got to wait and see what actually happened because I've seen some guys wait it out you know, and in, in, in this, that I think that's when it's painful when you know you're expecting to go and you keep getting passed over and over and over. I, I think that was a bit. I was fortunate. I was a ninth pick, and uh, Miami put a smile on my face. I'm guessing, uh, being a Dallas guy, you probably wanted to play for the Cowboys. I did. You know, I I grew up, um, man, die hard. You know, I'm Tom Landry, Drew Pearson, Tony Dorsett. Uh, Harvey Martin, Tutal Jones, Hollywood Henderson, D.D. Lewis, Cliff Water, Cliff Harris, all those guys I grew up watching. And, you know, I think, you know, being such a big Cowboy fan, um, yeah, that that would have been the ultimate goal. But um, I kind of know how the draft goes. You don't necessarily get to go where you want to go. It's where you pick. And then after I thought about it, I said it was probably good. I didn't get picked by by the Cowboys because – you know, you have a lot more distractions because you're so easily touched by a lot of people that you know. And uh, I just I just pray to God. I said, hey, you know, for somewhere warm, this and that, and he sent me to Miami. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was happy about that. I didn't even complain. So it worked out. But, uh, yeah, I was a huge Cowboy fan growing up. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the Dolphins select you ninth overall. What were your thoughts of being drafted by the Dolphins and playing for – you know, a legendary coach and Don Shula. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was definitely happy when I got that call. I mean, um, I have watched him a little bit, especially in college during, uh, you know, Monday night football, Miami would be on a lot. And of course it was Dan Marino, Mark Duke, Mark, Mark Clayton, and the way they used to just offense was prolific already. So um, I always put coach Shula in, in that same class with like Tom Landry. He's one of the top, you know, coaches in the NFL. So I knew he was a Hall of Fame coach and to actually go play for someone like him, you know, it was an honor. And, and I learned so much from, from Coach Shula, not only being as far as a player, but, you know, life after football and just some of the stuff he implemented. I think that's why he was, he continued to be successful even after he stopped coaching. So, yeah, that was, that was truly a bonus that, you know, you, you learn so much and, you always want to give credit to people that, you know, poured into your life and, and really made a difference. And he was definitely one of those people. Mm-hmm. So was Shula the one that called you before the pick was announced? Shula was actually, can you believe it? He was actually on the phone, the phone rung. And uh, he said, uh, hey, this is Coach Shula for Miami Dolphin." No, he said, this is Coach Shula. Are you ready to be a Dolphin? And I said, yes, sir. And uh, that was the happiest thing. He said, well, hold on. Uh, we're going to announce the pick in a minute. And I think back then, the first round, they got maybe 15 minutes. They took that whole 15 minutes of that ninth pick before they made the selection. And then once they make the selection on ESPN like they do now, they show the highlights of, you know, uh, the player that they selected and and this and that. But, yeah, it, it was a long 15 minutes, but I was glad he stayed on the phone with me all throughout the 15 minutes until they announced the pick. So that, that was pretty cool. Nice. So I think you said that uh, you were in Dallas for draft day. Who all was with you? My mom, dad, uh, my sister, and my two younger brothers. 
Okay. We're all at my parents' house. So just uh, the immediate family? The immediate family, yeah. We were there and watching it. And uh, I think it was, I want to say maybe NBC had a, a camera crew. I think it was just one television, sta- a local station. And uh, uh, after that, I think I went down to, uh, um, I want to say it was NBC in Dallas, but um, the affiliate in, in, in uh, Miami had to go down there and do an interview. And you know, you have the, the little wire headset in your ear and I was answering questions in Miami and this and that. And so I was just happy to be drafted, but it was, it was really cool. I remember correctly. I think you were number 56 in college, but obviously you're not going to be able to wear that in the pros. So how'd you get number 78 going to Miami? Yeah, I was uh, 56 in college and then in high school, I was 79. So um, when I got there, they, you know, they told me, so you're not going to be able to wear 56. I think the only way you can wear 50s back then in the, in the uh, NFL on offensive line is if you were a center. So I said, okay. I said, well, give me um, 79. But then I found out somebody had that number. And um, I said, well, you know, they was talking about maybe to us. No, I don't take nobody's number. I want to feel good. So that guy already had it. I was cool with it. But And then I said, okay, well, give me 78. And I, I like that number. now. I started thinking myself, oh, yeah. Anthony Munoz is 78. You know, there's a lot of great players that wore that number. So. I, I stuck with that and 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 that was it. So that's how I kind of came up with 78. So when you got to Cincinnati and you were wearing 79, it's because of the respect for Munoz? I wore 73 in in uh Cincinnati. And when I got there, you know, he was like he was like the man that played there. So, you know, the equipment guys, they kind of tried to ease into it. And it's like, man, we just don't give out that number. I said, I understand. Uh, I already know who Anthony is, had a great respect, had played in Pro Bowl with him. So I said, just give me 73. And I think I wore 73 and won the Pro Bowl. So I didn't let the number make that big of a deal. I'm going to make a big deal about that. I understood why they held him in such high regard, which I did myself. And so um, when they said they didn't give it out, I, I could respect that. And I said, well, yeah, just give me 73. I'm good with that. Now, obviously, you know, you said you have a lot of respect for Munoz. Tell me how he inspired you and the respect that you had for him. Well, it's just if if you know if offensive line play, especially the left tackle position, I think, you know, that's when they really start paying attention to how valuable the position was. And if you saw, you know, he had a long stretch of being probably the best tackle, left tackle or best tackle in the league uh, for years. So when I got an opportunity to meet him and the guy that's kind of like niched it out and, 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 and set the example of what it is to play the position and play it at a high level. So for so long, uh, it was definitely an honor. So I knew who he was probably before he knew me. And then years later, I found out that he was a really good baseball player when he was in college, which I, I had no idea of. So when I run into him again, that's something we're going to have to talk about a bit. Uh, guy told me, said, did you know he played uh, baseball in college? I said, man, I didn't have a clue, but yeah, he was just a great player and one of the best to ever lace him up. Now, who were some of the other offensive linemen that you had a lot of respect for in the NFL? Uh, Jackie Slater. Um, uh, and then some of the guys that I played when I played during them, but 
those two, I think Munoz and Slater, and, and sometimes I would watch film on those guys. It's just, you know, they were technicians, but they were two of the best to ever to ever do it. And I think Jackie Slater probably played 18 years or something like that. And then uh, just going to the Pro Bowl and meeting guys like Bruce Matthews, Munchek, you know, Bruce played 20 years, this and that. And then you form a friendship with him and a bond and stuff like that. The guys that kind of come before you, and then you meet them. That's that's uh that's big time to me. And Bruce Bruce Armstrong was another guy. So there were several guys, but you know, you always looked at the guys that were considered the top at your position, and and you watch them. And then you know sometimes you can learn something from them. But just how they approach the game and stuff like that, they just did it with ex so the excellence excellency week in and week out. Mm. So now you're back in Miami here and. You're on the same team as Hall of Famer or future Hall of Famer Dan Marino. What's it like walking into camp and into the locker room and into the huddle for the first time as a rookie? Yeah, I, I, I kind of remember doing that during uh, mini camp. And, you know, he came up and spoke to us. And it, it was different because all these guys you've watched on TV, you're, you're actually that close to them. And, you see how they've played and, and the level that they played at. So, you know, Marino was already the man. He was Mr. South Florida and got there. So the thing that I was concerned about, I said, I just don't want to be remembered as the guy that gets someone like this hurt because I knew the magnitude of his presence that was in South Florida. So, um, but he was a great teammate and learned a lot of things during the way he prepared and, and it's not you just you watch the guys that done and you figure out the little things that they do to become successful. And 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 so I learned a lot from Dan, but that that was the that was the thing that I did not want to be remembered as the guy that gets him hurt because he was he's one of the best to ever throw that football and and uh uh just a great teammate. So it was it was kind of overwhelming first meeting, but I kind of settled down, but but that was the thing in the back of my mind that kept me motivated. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that's got to be a lot of pressure. You and Keith Sims were protecting his blind side, and you're both rookies at the same time? <laughs> both rookies side-by-side side on the blind side. So, um, And I think that's what drew so much attention, but, you know, the thing was, it, it was it was it was perfect because you know we were both rookies, but it seemed like we just gelled immediately. A lot of times we could look at each other and kind of knew what each other were thinking this and that. So I am so fortunate that they drafted him with the second round pick because I thought he was going uh, probably go first round to another team, but to to have him to play as long as we did and do the things that we did together and accomplish, it just made my job so much easier. Now, you have Don Shula and you have Dan Marino, both very strong personalities, people who want to control what's going on. Did Shula give up any control at all to Marino to allow him to do things? Did he keep him on a short leash or did he give him a lot of flexibility to be able to run the game? I think I think at times, I mean, Shula was always involved in, in the offenses and that, that was just the type of coach he was. But I think by the time we had got there, Dan was at a level to where he tr- – you know, Dan wanted to – he could see someone on the field and change the plays or audible, audible play or whatever. He trusted his judgment and stuff like that. So he was still hands-on, but Dan knew that he had the ability, if he saw something, to take advantage of it. 
that that just worked well. And, and when you get that type of support and, and, and confidence to know that you got that without, you know, changing something to be like, you know, why in the hell did you do that? He trusted what Dan did, but he had proven it over years. Cause I think Dan was maybe in his eighth year by the time we got there. So, and he had set all kind of records and stuff before we got there. So uh, I think they had a really good relationship. And I think the thing that, that really made that work is they were both competitors and they both wanted to win. So they had the same goal, vision, this and that. And as long as everybody's on the same page, that's typically where it works out pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me about the battles that you had with Bruce Smith twice a year, sometimes three times a year. Are there any stories you're willing to share? Uh, the only story is, man, is like you said, two or three times a year. Uh, that's definitely the toughest guy that I had to uh, play against. Um, and then it didn't help that the rivalry that Buffalo and Miami had at the time. And um, it wasn't a huge talk or whatever, but you knew it was going to be 60 minutes of hell. You know, sometime I think I, I won, sometime he won, but I just – really enjoyed the matchup because when you play against the best, you just want to see how you match up against them. You're not going to win them all and, and, and this and that, but you respect the guy by the way he plays the game. And I think he respects you by the way you play the game. And then, you know, you know, how you, like you say, you lose this one, you got another shot at it maybe later on in the season or whatever like that. So I always look forward to it. And uh, yeah, he's him and Reggie White, I've kind of put them in a class by themselves, but, but he was that type of player. He was that guy. Mm. He played against some other greats too, like Richard Dent and um, Derek Thomas, uh, John Randall, I think was around the same time. So tell me about playing against, you know, these greats and how that helped you improve your game. Well, if you can play against the greats, you can play against the other guys and and not that the other guys are slouches, but you know, my first preseason game was against Richard Dent. And I think I played against Richard Dent. Um, we played uh, the Eagles, Clyde Simmons. Thank goodness Reggie was on the other side, but Clyde was tough. Reggie Brown was over Keith Sims. Um, we played Houston. They had Carl Mecklenburg and, and uh, Simon Fletcher. And then I think the last preseason game, we played the Minnesota Vikings, and they had Chris Dolman, um, Henry Thomas, I think um, I think John Randall was – it was just you, – you come to find out it doesn't matter who you play, somebody is that guy on that team because I think everybody knows you need that guy that can change the game or, 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 or swing the momentum, and they can do that with a huge play. But it was just you, – you learned to say, hey, it's another one this week, and – you know, some of them was funny. Uh, I always liked John Randall because he would talk trash and he had these funny little sayings. Um, uh, Michael Dean Perry was another guy that was, you know, he would talk trash, but at the end of the day, you know, you shake hands and snap it. It was just part of their game and how they got up. But, but you know, you enjoyed it. And, you know, playing against guys like Derek Thomas, um, I got a chance to play against Lawrence T- Taylor. So, just by you name it, I played against them. Uh, definitely wasn't easy, but you respect those type of players. And when you can match up pretty well against them, you know, that lets you know that, you know, you definitely belong with, with, with in the league and, and you can, you can play against anybody when you can play against guys of that caliber. 
Uh, you had mentioned a little bit about trash talkers. Uh, who were some of the best trash talkers that you had faced against? Uh, I think John Randall, uh, and it wasn't him and Michael Dean, they were pretty good. Um, uh, and I, I remember Michael Dean, he was the type of guy that would go through the media guide and find out what high, what college you went to or, you know, if you had a wife. Nothing disrespectful, but just enough to just kind of mess with you. And, and I, I was used to that already, so it was funny to me, you know, and this and that. And then a lot of times you meet some of these same guys when you go to the Pro Bowl, so you just – you know they're gonna do it, and you know I, I, I used to tell my guys, hey, don't pay no attention to them. They just they're trying to get in your head. If they can get in your head, and you can't think. You, you know they're gonna have a field day, but yeah, that's just the way that, that they that was a part of their game. But nothing. The guys that I remember that were tra trash talk was nobody like disrespectful. They just kind of like joke with you and stuff like that, and see if they can get you off your game. Mm -hmm. Now you played in Dan Marino's last game. A huge loss to Jacksonville, sixty-two to seven. Talk to me about that game and how it felt to see Marino hang it up after that type of a loss. Well, I, I mean that that was a tough game. I just that was probably the I think that's the worst loss probably I had in in my career. I mean it was it was uh, I can remember I think the week before we went to Seattle and it was playoffs and we won that and we flew back. And then we had to fly to Jacksonville, which was much shorter. Um, it was a much shorter flight, but that game against Seattle was really physical game, and um, it seemed like it was one of those games that, no matter what Jacksonville tried, it worked offense, defensively, this and that. So it was, it was one of those days that I think we were fighting hard, but it was just, it wasn't our day. That's the way I talk it up. I'm not taking anything from Jacksonville. They went out and performed and, 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 and did what they were supposed to execute this and that and played a great game. But yeah, it's just, it was tough because you, you, you fighting, but you just know it ain't, it ain't happening. But um, you I don't think you want it to end like that, but you know, you know, Dan had 18 years and you know, that's one game and you don't look at the last game. You look at a body of work over the whole time. And, you know, for what he did, you know, he's considered one of the greatest to ever, played his game. So um, I'm sure he's not sitting there, you know, mulling over that. The thing that he stressed um, to me, Keith Sims, when we, when we did play and he, like I said, we learned a lot from him was that, you know, he went to the Super Bowl and, you know, they lost to the 49ers and he said, Oh man, I'll be back next year. And this was like my rookie second year. And he said, he said, man, I hadn't been back since. So he said, you can't just, figured that the next year you'll get an opportunity, you got to take advantage of that opportunity when you, when it's presented. And um, it just gave me a different look at how to process it because a couple of times we got close, but we never got to the bowl, got to the AFC championship one time, but it's just, everything just has to go right in order for you to just make it there and have an opportunity. So uh, I could definitely appreciate him sharing that with, with me and some of the other younger players, because, you know, a lot of times you just kind of there, you're trying to figure out everything, but when you can receive knowledge early on from, from a guy like that, you got to respect it. Going to take a quick break, then continue with our interview with Richmond Webb. If you like what you're hearing, consider pressing that donate button in the podcast player. That money goes to continuing to provide quality content as well as to help retired players in need. 
you are enjoying this interview, make sure you visit the FLA website at www.football-learning-academy.com. There you'll find more archival interviews such as Don Shula, Mercury Morris, Ken Riley, and Maxie Bond. We also have a variety of other interviews such as Amy Trask, the first female CEO of an NFL franchise. We have broadcasting and sports writing legend Leslie Visser teaching a mini master class on interviewing. Nolan Harrison, a former player and current senior director at the NFL Players Association. Shannon Easton, the first female on-field official in NFL history and many more. To get access to these interviews, classes on the history of the game, a blog and much more, go to www.football-learning-academy.com. We're back to our interview with Richmond Webb. Okay, so Dan Marino retires, Jay Fiedler comes in, and you know, obviously no disrespect to Jay Fiedler, but you're going from the Hall of Famer and Dan Marino to Jay. How did things change as far as the way the offense worked? Well, I, I think the way it changed is I think um, – with Dan, he was limited um, mobility-wise, but, you know, the arm he had, you know, and he had the quick release and stuff like that. But Jay was more mobile quarterback, and I think we, we ran a, a little ball, ran the ball a little bit more, so we probably had a little bit more of a balanced attack with Jay versus than we did with uh, Marino. So um, I, I think you always got to look at the skill set and design it around what players do best. So it would have been very unfair for them to say, we want you to play like Moreno because he just didn't have that skill set or vice versa for the, to, to take Dan and say, we want you to be like Jay Fiedler knowing, you know, some of his mobility issues, this and that, but, but you, you, you kind of assess the situation and then you look at guys' strength and weaknesses and try to put them in the best position to be successful. And I, I thought they did that. Mm-hmm. Now, you had three different head coaches, if I understand correctly, in Miami. That was Shula, Jimmy Johnson, and Dave Wanstatt, and then you had Dick LeBeau when you were in Cincinnati. Talk to me about each of those coaches, what you liked about playing for each of them and what your relationship was like with each of them. Uh, I think I had a good relationship with all my coaches. Um, I'd probably be uh, definitely more favorable to Shula than any other wrestler because he he took that chance and gave an opportunity and drafted me. But, um, uh, just his knowledge of the game, um, the way he approached it. Um, I think Shula knew it was most of the time the little things that separated wins and losses in the NFL, like kind of figured out most games or decided by field goal or less. So, you know, me jumping outside or holding penalties instead of it being first and 10, it'd be first and 15 or first and 20. If you can eliminate that, you can you can get down the field quicker versus trying to compensate for you know making you know not knowing what you do on assignments and stuff like that. So that was instilled in me early on, and then uh, after Shula retired, uh, they brought Jimmy Johnson in, and of course you know he had the success with Dallas with the uh, Super Bowls, and you know had won national championships at the University of Miami. So uh, knew about him, and then um, tough, tough coach. Um, but uh, I think we we started to run the ball a little bit more, but I think um, our defense was really, really good. That's when we got Zach Thomas. We got Jason Taylor, Pastor Tang, uh, Sam Madison, this and that in our offense. If we could have matched that defense, I think we could have been really, really special. But um, 
he was a good coach, learned a lot from him how to, you know, prepare. He would prepare the way we practice. Most time practices were harder with Jimmy during the practices, sometime with the game. So you were always prepared for that. And then my last year in Miami was Dave Wanstead, and that's when Jimmy retired. But he was the uh once he was defense coordinator and became the head coach. So played up under him a year. So it was kind of the same system. But Dave, Dave was a cool coach. Um I don't think he was as as intense as Jimmy, but still had high expectations out of his players. And then I went to Cincinnati and then, you know, Dick LeBeau, he was a former uh, host, uh, played the league for a long time. And so he had the, the, well, Shula did too, but, you know, being a former player, you can kind of relate. And then um, being a coach at the same time, but uh, really respected, you know, the veteran players and this and that. And I think, when I came to Cincinnati, since I was, you know, older player, a lot of young players looked up to me. So just help provide some of that leadership in the locker room and stuff like that. So, uh, but he was a player's coach. So I had four really good coaches. I don't have anything to complain about. So uh, they all treated me well. So, but they, there were differences, but all winners. Mm. Talk to me about the culture differences between Miami and Cincinnati. I think the biggest difference was um, it wasn't so much talent. First thing I noticed was when I went to Cincinnati, I think the thing uh, was probably more mental than physical because they had the players, but um, it was, and, and I talked to them at times, but it was Cincinnati had one probably all through the nineties. I mean, it was a, 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 probably a decade of losing. So, the thing that I noticed a lot of times was that we could go out to a game and we would be playing well. And then if the momentum swung or shifted or the team made a play and we fumbled the ball or interception or whatever, mentally it was hard for them to overcome that momentum swing and swing it back. But I think it was just because it seemed like every time something bad happens, it's what usually happens. And they kind of got into – a rhythm of that. And then um, I think after I left, that's when Marvin Lewis came in and he was able to start changing the coach. We were starting it, but, you know, he kind of finished it off and, and got that going. And now, you know, Cincinnati is, you know, they've been to the Super Bowl, Joe Burrow, this and that. So it just, once you get that mental, that psyche changes and that, it make the world a difference. When you retired, you decided you wanted to retire as a Dolphin because you spent the bulk of your career there. Now, talk to me about the call that you made to the Dolphins to see if they'd be open to signing you to a one-day contract for that retirement. Yeah, I just um, I just called them. You know, even when I left Miami, you know, I understood it was business. It was it was no hard feelings. This and that. I just wanted to continue to play, and I knew I was an older player, and a lot of time you got to make those tough call decisions. So. Wasn't no hard feeling. So after I retired and decided I was going to hang it up, I think I called Brian Wiedemeyer. I called the front office. And I said, hey, um, I want to come back and, you know, just sign and retire. And they welcomed me with open arms. And I was happy to be able to do that. And, yeah, it was a quick deal. Had a little press conference and all that. So, uh, no, it was it was cool. I was I was definitely grateful and thankful that they let, allowed me to do that. Now, you had a really long career. What's it like to hang up the cleats and 
retire after playing football for the bulk of your life? It's it's different. You know, the first, um, it probably took me about, I'm going to say three or four years to count selling it because you've just been in a, in a, in a, in a rhythm of, you've been in a system for so long that, you know, I already knew like, you know, season will be over, you know, say January, February, you get a little time off and then March, the off season workout program starts, but now I don't have that. So you still kind of get those feelings, but, you know, I was back home in Dallas versus being in Miami and then, you know, round time training camp, mini camp and the draft goes, goes through, you start kind of feeling that itch and stuff, but, you just got to do it. And then I think I think for about two years I watched football, but I really didn't watch football because, you know, that was – it was tough. I think I just had to reprogram my mind because it was, it was really tough at times to watch the games because you were used to being out there. Now you're not traveling or now you're not, you know, getting to the stadium a couple hours before the game started, this and that. So it was – it's a transition and I think it took me about three or four years, but now I enjoy it. I enjoy being a fan. And uh matter of fact, the Dolphins were just here last week playing the Texans and I went out and watched practice and uh I got a chance to see Dan, spend some time with him, uh Nat Moore and uh all that. So I've really enjoyed it, but it was good to be able to go out and watch practice and this and that. So um once you make the transition, I don't think it's that bad, but but yeah. It took about three or four years to kind of work that out my system. Yeah, but I get that. I imagine that first year you were pretty happy not to have to go to training camp. You, you are, but you, you're not because I, I guess the thing you look at, you know it's going to be hot. You know your body going to hurt. You know you got two days, this and that. But you're still in the locker room with the guys. You know, some guys cracking jokes or, you know, it's always going to be something funny or something going on. Even though you hurt me, you, you, that's the that's the system you go through. And then once you kind of get through that, you know, okay, now we get to the regular season. We start playing for real. So, like you said, you, you don't look forward to training camp because, you know, it's long days. You know, you get up early. You, you, your day's over 9, 30, 10 o'clock, and then you got to be back up at least by 7 in the morning starting it over again. But at the same time, you're going through it with your teammates, and, and, and I think, that's the part that I miss. I miss the camaraderie, this and that. So even though it wasn't the best the time training camp, you still had a good time because you were around around the guys that you, you went to war with. You still keep in touch with a lot of your former teammates? I do. Um uh, uh I do. Uh and matter of fact, back in was it April, they had a dolphin crew. So about 35 of us, you know, some of my played with someone played before me, a few after me. But it was a good mix of us and being able to spend time on a ship a week with those guys. That was really, really, we had a really, really good time. So uh, definitely keep in touch with them. And anytime they come close to Texas, if I can go see them play, I'm going to go see them play because a couple of guys work for the organization. And I try to make it down at least one or two times a year for a game. So, yeah, definitely look forward to that. What did you do to prepare for your life after football? And what did you do during your retirement? Uh, I, the, the main thing I did was I, I promised my mom I would get my degree from Texas A&M. And, and uh, I got that. And then um, never went really went to work for anybody. I, I, I did um, start getting into a little real estate and um, 
did a couple of commercial real estate deals, partnered with some guys and that worked well. So um, did a few deals like that, but now I just got some rental properties and I kind of manage those. And um, that's kind of what I settled into. So that um, definitely helped getting an education and kind of knowing some of this stuff because you're not going to be able to play football forever. And, you know, to make that transition is always easier and to have a little knowledge than none at all. So, you know, I, I think it was, it was good. It felt good to walk across that stage and get my degree from Texas A&M. So um, I know a lot of guys, regardless of the school to go play and, you know, sometimes three years now, cause you can be out in three or four, three years or whatever, but um, go to school. Yeah. Get your, get your degree, this and that. And it's a rewarding experience because you started something, but you actually finished it. So I, I think I, I cherished that a lot getting my degree. What'd you get your degree in? Uh, industrial distribution. Okay. Now you were inducted into the Dolphins honor roll in 2006 and then the Texas A&M hall of fame in 2007. Tell me what it's like getting those calls. Well, you know, that's, that's one of the highest honors you can get. Um, you know, every time I go down to Miami and, uh, you know, some of my, my, my girls were young, but now they go down there and they actually see my name up in the stadium and everybody name doesn't go up in the stadium, but it's just a way they show that they appreciate what you did on the field in the community and stuff, why you played that, the way you represented the organization and to be one of the top players to ever put on a, Dolphin uniform or vice versa, Texas A&M, um, and, and to receive that type of honor, you know, your name is going to always be there even after you're gone and this and that. So that, you know, you get that call. It's, it's, it's overwhelming, but you appreciate that someone can appreciate how you played the game and, and what you did and your contribution to it. So um, like you said, those are the highest honors that you can get and, I was definitely uh, humbled by that. Let's talk a little pro football hall of fame. Your teammate, Zach Thomas was just inducted in there. Talk to me about watching his induction speech and playing with him. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, Zach's from Texas too. Um, so uh, I was definitely happy for him. I went up um, for his induction. Jason Taylor went I went up for his induction. Dan's I was at his inductions. And then uh, another good friend of mine, we, got drafted the same year, Cortez Kennedy. Um, I went up for, for his induction. So I've been up there a few times, and it's always good to see guys that, you know, a lot of them up, up there on the stage, but you, you run into guys that you play with and this and that. But, you know, the way Zach played the game and, you know, the respect we had for him in the locker room, uh, you can't be more happy for a guy the way he, you know, Play prepared for the game, and a lot of people thought he was undersized, but, you know, he never used that as an excuse. You know, he put in the work, you know, and and, and just was a student of the game and one of the best players ever, you know, played. So, um, you know, his name is up in the stadium as well. So, um, the, I'm in good company, but, yeah, definitely had to go support my teammate. Uh, anytime somebody like that goes in, I'll be there. So, um I was really happy for him and I could tell he was, uh, you know, he had his family there, his kids there. I met some of his uh, extended family just in that this time. So it was, it was a great time in Canton. It's 
few weeks ago, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully we'll be watching your induction speech soon. I mean, in my opinion, you definitely deserve it. But outside of you, who do you think are some of the other offensive linemen, you know, during your time period that you believe belong in the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Uh, one that sticks out, and I played with him in Cincinnati, and I, I think he'll uh, possibly make it in. It's uh, uh, Willie Anderson. Um, he was he was really good. Uh, Keith, you know, I, I love Keith Sims. I mean, I just think the way I, – I, when I look think about Keith, I think about um, Art Shell and um, – Draw a blank. Uh, it'll come to me in a minute. But um, I think about the Raiders, but they played right beside each other, so we played right beside each other, and just that combination. So, um, uh, those are two names that just come to mind right here. But I'm trying to. Uh, if I wasn't thinking about it, because he used to be over player association, <laughs> but he passed away from. Uh, pancreatic cancer. Gene Upshaw. I knew it was going to come to you. I'm sorry, but yeah, Gene Upshaw. And, uh, you know, the way him and Arshel played the game side by side, you know, I, I paid attention to that because it reminded me of me and Keith and both those guys in the Hall of Fame. So it's definitely high praise uh, bringing in those two guys. No question. No question. All right. So, how do you think your Dolphins are going to do this year? I think they are going to do extreme. I think definitely playoffs. Um, the thing I think that um, I think on paper, I think uh, the addition of uh, Coach Fangio on defense, um, the new some of the additions they made. I think the thing with the Dolphins and, and any team is just the health and not losing players at key positions. Um, I know we got Jalen Ramsey out now. We signed him. He had a little knee issue they, they clean it up it'll be a little while before he gets back but mainly keeping your core guys or, or your playmakers and stuff keeping those guys healthy and it gives you the best chance so um I, i'm definitely playoffs and and some of these guys they're even talking talking super bowl so if they can stay healthy i, I mean if they perform the way everybody expects them to perform i think they'll have a shot at it I mean, that's a tough division with Buffalo in there. They're still going to be good. You got the Jets added a lot of talent, and you can never count out Bill Belichick. So you said playoffs, but where do you think the Dolphins are going to place in the division? You think they're going to be number one, be behind Buffalo or behind New York? What do you think? I think um, I would say Buffalo. The only thing that concerns me about Buffalo is not their players, but they lost um, – Dabo went to the Giants, and I think Leslie Frazier stepped down this year. So you lose both of your coordinators, which is the interim interval piece, and getting the players, you know, you know, lined up this and that. So that's got to hurt a little bit. I'm not, I'm sure they got capable people that replaced them, but when you lose guys of that caliber, you, you definitely got to take a look at it. But they still have Josh Allen. They have Diggs. So they got – they got playmakers, um, but but like you said, it's going to be a real tough. Aaron Rodgers is in the AFC East now with the Jets. Uh, Dalvin Cook just signed with the Jets. So um, it, it could be one of those divisions that if you can just make it out of the East, you have a shot that you could have three or four really good teams and maybe only one team or two teams. It just depend on that 
make it out and make it into the playoffs because when we're beating up on each other, some of the other uh, American conference divisions, you know, whether South, North or uh, West, if you don't have, if your division is not as strong, it's a little bit easier for you to make it into the playoffs. So that's the thing, but, but you're right. The AFC is probably, I believe we might be in the toughest division whether AFC or NFC uh, is pretty loaded in the AFC. So, yeah, you brought up a valid point there. Yeah, I mean, you know, you've got a few really tough divisions. I mean, NFC East is going to be pretty tough this year, too, with, you know, Philadelphia obviously looking to go back to the Super Bowl. You've got Dallas. You can't count them out. The Giants made, you know, a lot of strides last year. Um, Washington's getting better. They're adding some more people on there. So, yeah, you've got a bunch of – divisions out there where they're going to be beating each other up and like you said a lot of other teams in other divisions could sneak into those playoffs and and it happens i mean it ain't fair but it it just happens that way sometimes so yeah you're right and the, the eagles the eagles um you know he went to the super bowl last year and i, I think andy reed knew not to leave much time on the clock because they were going back and forth back and forth back and forth and and uh that was a great. That was a good, that was a good Super Bowl game. They just didn't have enough time to to answer what Kansas City did. So uh, those are the things you want to see. But 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 like you said, the Eagles the Eagles are going to be tough, and we got to play the Eagles this year too. So yeah, you're right about that. Not that I'm going to hold you to it, but what's your Super Bowl prediction? Mine? Oh no, I don't make one this early. <laughs> uh, I wish I could, man. I'd be in Vegas right now. But I, I just, I think since I understand um, um, how hard it is and then how much injuries can play into a team that's really on a roll and they lose a guy two, three here or there, it can change the whole trajectory of, of the path that they're on. So um, I would definitely say Philly's probably one of the, the best, you know, right now. And, you got to go with Kansas City. Um, they've done it year in year out, so they got a they got a pretty good system. Uh, but those those two teams probably stick out, and that's because they went to the Super Bowl. But um, and they they always seem like they add the, the right positions. But hopefully, the Dolphins can can enter in there with their name mentioned with those guys, and we play. Kansas City, I think in is it Germany this year or whatever. So yeah, I think that is yeah, it's over in Europe somewhere. I think it's Germany. Yeah, that, that should be a good one. So at least you get a get a taste and say, okay, let's go head to head and see how we match up, and then you know hopefully we we get to mix it up again in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Last question: What do you like to do in your free time? You know what, Ken, uh, um, gardening. I when COVID hit. You know, it shut everybody down and um, they just basically stuck at home and couldn't really go anywhere. And uh, I was just like, man, I got to do something. I got to get out. But I couldn't really go anywhere. So I started with just I went and bought, went to Lowe's and bought some five gallon buckets and start planting a few different things and start watching them grow and you see the flowers bloom and stuff like that. And I, I think it was really good for my mental, but it just, it's a meditation time for me. It's just, and it's been a challenge this um, time of year because it's been really hot in Texas. I mean, we've had probably 
20 some days in a row, maybe more of just a hundred degree plus weather. So, you know, you gotta keep everything hydrated, water, this and that. So um, that's what I, I kind of do, but I, I really like doing it. And then, you know, you see the fruit start pop, popping up or the, the, the lettuce or what, whatever you're growing and it gets bigger, this and that. And, that that's me. So that, that I do a little bit of that. That that that's that's my meditation time. That's what I do. Well, there's nothing better than fresh fruits and vegetables that you grow yourself. <laughs> that's what my wife says. So she yeah, she 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 be barking out orders what I need to grow. She ain't going out, <laughs> she'll water every now and then, but she's the harvesting and stuff like that. Most of that I gotta do that part there. Mm. Well, Richmond, thank you for being here. I really appreciate your time. Hey, Ken, I appreciate it. I had a great time, and uh, you have, you enjoy the rest of your day, sir. Thank you. You do the same. Thanks for listening to our interview with Richmond Webb, but we're not done. For our Pro Football History Nugget of the Week, we talk about some of the best players to come out of Texas A&M, Richmond's alma mater. At the time of this recording, there were 317 players from Texas A&M that took the field in regular season pro football, but we're only going to talk about a few of them right here. Let's start with big Sam Adams, who played for the Seattle Seahawks, Baltimore Ravens, Oakland Raiders, Buffalo Bills, Cincinnati Bengals, and Denver Broncos in his career that spanned from 1994 through 2007. You also have Hall of Famer Gail Larry, who was defensive back for the Detroit Lions from 1952 through 1964. Lester Hayes was a defensive back for the Raiders from 1977 through 1986. John David Crow was a halfback that played for the Cardinals in both Chicago and St. Louis from 1958 through 1964, then went to the San Francisco 49ers and played from 1965 through 1968. He's a member of the Hall of Fame's all-decade team of the 1960s. There is Shane Leckler, punter for the Oakland Raiders and Houston Texans from 2000 through 2017. He was named to not one, but two all-decade teams, both the 2000s and the 2010s. We had players that also went into coaching like Gary Kubiak and Jack Pardee. Kubiak was a quarterback for the Denver Broncos from 1983 through 1991 and spent 23 years in coaching as both a head coach and a coordinator. Jack Pardee was a linebacker with the Rams in Washington from 1957 through 1972 and spent 12 years mainly as a head coach. He also spent a season as defensive coordinator for the San Diego Chargers in 1981. Pardee coached in the World Football League, the NFL, college united states football league and the canadian football league you also have current players like miles garrett von miller ryan Tannehill, and kyler murray and anyone who knows me knows i cannot escape talking about older players and there are several who played in the 1920s three of them are neely allison who played for the 1926 buffalo rangers 1927 buffalo bisons and 1928 new york giants there was also jim kendrick who played for a bunch of teams from 1922 through 1927 also, there was Mule Wilson, who played for a bunch of teams from 1926 through 1933. In the 1930s, you have Charlie Malone, who played for Boston and Washington from 1934 through 1942. Now, this is by no means an exhaustive list of great players who went to Texas A&M. I know that there are a lot more that can be discussed, so tag me on social media to discuss your favorite players that went to Texas A&M. That's all that we have for this week. Stay tuned to our social media channels to stay up to date on our episodes. You can find the links on the main page of this podcast. If you like what you've heard, consider pressing that donate button in the podcast player. That money goes to continuing to provide quality content as well as to help retired players in need. 
Thank you for listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. To learn more about the FLA, go to our website at www.football-learning-academy.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.